thank you for your generosity towards our year-end gift. This church continues to blow me away in terms of your generosity and, and living out the fact that we don't own anything as followers of Jesus, but he owns it all, and we're just stewards. And, and uh, the way you live that out consistently is just amazing. So thank you for that. I appreciate that, and I know the Lord is pleased. With that, let's go before him quickly before we dive into his word. And Father, now that we turn to your word, we ask that you would open our hearts, that we would be molded by your hand, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As some of you may know, uh, my family and I lived in Lisbon, Portugal for a period of time. We served uh, our denomination as missionaries there. And uh, one of the things that when you live, as some of you know, in a different culture, it can be very stressful. You're learning a new language, you're learning new ways of doing things. And, and I remember uh, there was a season, maybe a year in, where I was really, really frustrated and uh, down and depressed. And it was kind of one of those very difficult times. And I think what God was doing during that time in my life is he was purifying some of my unholy attitudes that I carry in my heart. And uh, he was kind of getting to the root of those, and he's putting me through this difficult time. And uh, I had the joy, of, thankfully, of having a friend there named Alfredo Abreu. Some of you know, remember Alfredo. He's taught here a couple times. He's one of the missionaries on our wall that we support. And uh, during this difficult time, I went out to lunch with my friend Alfredo. And uh, I sat across the table from him, and I just began to kind of just let him have it all the stuff that I was dealing with, all my frustration, all my anger, all my, uh, just the, the things that were bothering me, I just was, it was ugly. It wasn't a good thing. I was spewing all this stuff, and I was trying to justify my existence in this country, and I was trying to justify my existence before him, and I, I told him how I came from this large church, and I used to teach the Bible to all sorts of people, and that was my main gift, was to teach the Bible, and I couldn't do it there, and here I can't even talk to a preschooler, because I can't speak this language, and nah, 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 and just going, and going, and going, and he let me go just patiently, and just sat there and listened, and then he stopped and he said, so you said your gift is to teach the Bible. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what I should be doing here, but I can't. And he said, what was Jesus' gift? I said, what wasn't Jesus' gift? He had them all. And Alfredo said, Jesus was the gift. And he said, until you come here and you're a gift to the people of Portugal, we really don't care what you have to teach. It was what Proverbs calls in Proverbs 27, 6, the wounds of a friend that can be trusted. It was what I needed. It was a hard truth that was painful to hear but it was so critical to my spiritual growth. It's something that I still hold with me today. And I remember that the calling of the Christian life is to be a gift like Christ, not so much what we bring to be significant or to bring to put our mark or our uh, hand upon what he's doing. It's all about him. 
Have you ever felt frustrated about your lack of spiritual growth? Have you ever felt like what you believe and what comes out of your life don't really match up and you are so sick of that and you long for that to match together? Do you feel like you know a lot about God, but you really don't know God? The humble pain that we're going to experience as we look through this letter we're going to dive into these next few weeks, the book of James, will take an honest look at our heart and it will lead us into wholeness. We're going to look at this book of James and the author of this book was Jesus' brother. Can you imagine being Jesus' brother? Trying to live up to that? And it's actually his half-brother because Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, but James was born of Mary and Joseph. And he didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God until after Jesus rose from the dead. All through his life, he didn't believe it. And then he grabbed onto the faith in a way that was so set and powerful, and he didn't let go, and he became a leader in the early church. This is the person who's going to instruct us these next few weeks. James, like a surgeon, takes a scalpel and he cuts, but he cuts to heal. He's, he brings words like wounds of a friend that can be trusted, that lead us to wholeness and lead us to healing and to be more like Christ. The series we're diving into is called uh, Becoming Whole. As we study the book of James, and he speaks truthfully about how to bring wholeness into our lives. We are made to be whole in Christ. We are made to be whole and live as God intended. That's the goal, and that's what James wants to bring to us. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open to the book of James. You can open it to uh, James chapter 1 if you're not familiar with the Bible and you have a print Bible. Uh, you go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Keep going to the right. You'll go past 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. You'll go to Hebrews, and then right after Hebrews, you'll see the small book of James. This verse tells us, uh, opens with uh, opening of who James is and who he is writing to. James chapter 1, let's look at the first verse. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That shows us his humility. He was Jesus' brother. And he called himself the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have said, hey, I'm the big guy's brother. If there's anybody that can tell you what you should know, it's me. But he calls himself a servant of God and then acknowledges Jesus as Messiah, not his brother. And then he says this letter is given to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. The 12 tribes is referring to Jewish Christians, people who were raised Jewish, they became Christian, and now they're living outside of Jerusalem, which was the hub of the Jewish and Christian activity at the time. They're living outside of that area, so they're kind of like these rural churches that are all outside of the city of Jerusalem. That's who he's writing to. They're scattered away from the central church, and these are churches that are struggling 
There are churches that are sick. In fact, these churches are dying. In terms of spiritual health, they were critically ill. They were poor not only in finances, but also in good godly leadership who could lead them. And they were critically ill, and James turns his attention to these, and he does so in a kind, loving, truthful way, as a good physician who, when you're critically ill, tells you the full story, who kindly does not hold back. It's truth that can lead to wholeness. That's what James gives these churches, and he gives to us as well. My goal today is to give us an introduction to the book versus kind of hang in one set verse. So I'm going to kind of just do an overview as we start this series of James and what it's about. So I encourage you to leave your Bible open to James, and I'm going to kind of point out different things as we go through. Commentator David Gibson rightly said that uh, James, like a good physician, does three things. First, he looks at the symptoms, then he makes a proper diagnosis, and then he prescribes the right course of treatment. And so we're going to look at the first one. He looks at all the symptoms. James looks at the symptoms. The overall major issue in these churches that were sick was that there was a mixing of mindset between a godly mindset and the world's way of thinking. We often talk about how the church needs to be in the world and be a light for the world, and that's true. But what was happening here was there's a little too much of the world's way of thinking getting into the church. Glenn did a great definition in his sermon last week where he talked about the world. When we're talking about the world here, we're not talking about the created world that, the, that God made. We're not talking about the people in the world. We're talking about this culture of the world. We're talking about this systematic way of thinking. And this systematic way of thinking has been seeping into these churches. And the overall problem in the churches that James is writing to is in, there's too much of the world's thinking and the world's ways seeping into the church, and it was affecting how they think and affecting how they live. This became apparent by at least three symptoms that I want to show you today. Three symptoms that emerged from the hearts of the people in these churches that James is talking to. The first one is that the people in these churches spoke harshly. The people in these churches spoke harshly. They began to talk to other people, not like followers of Jesus, not in ways that God intended, but in harsh, cruel ways. Look at James chapter 1, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Look at chapter 1, verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Flip over to chapter 3. Look at verse 6. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. So these were people who spoke harshly. They didn't sound like followers of Jesus. How we talk is important to God. Harsh words lead to fights and to quarrels and eventually to disunity. And I'm amazed at how quickly we as followers of Jesus Christ, myself included, can adopt the ways of the world in how we talk to one another and how we treat one another. 2024 is an election year. 
We are all going to be bombarded by ads that speak harshly of other human beings. Guard your heart. Don't follow the world's way of thinking. Don't let all that seep into you to the fact that then you feel that you can bombard those you disagree with. Guard your heart and mind. This can also be difficult because many of you may work in a place where people, it's natural just to speak harshly to one another. It's easy to conform. But the way we talk to others matters. The way we treat people in our homes, in our workplaces, in our friendships matters. Speaking to each other harshly, though, is a symptom. It's not the disease. Let's look at another symptom, number two. The people in these churches built walls of separation. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. The people in these churches were really good at building walls. They were building walls between those who had money and those who didn't. These were poor churches. And so they were honoring certain types of people, those that had wealth and status, while dishonoring those that were poor and marginalized. They liked the people who were easy to like, but they often avoided those who were hard to love. And James says that's anti-Christian thinking. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Commentator David Gibson wrote this in this quote. He said, this letter is going to ask us to reflect on the price tags we attach to people as we experience church together. Sometimes the ways of the world seep into our mind and our thinking so subtly that we're not even aware we do this, but we go and we attach little price tags of value on different people. And depending on where they rate, that's where we spend our time. And James is saying, this is a symptom, not the disease. Let's look at another symptom, number three. The people in these churches were not living out their faith. Look at James chapter 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Is it faith at all is what he's asking. This one symptom is, in particular, one that we at Crossview Church have to pay attention to. We have to pay attention to all of them, but especially this one, because the churches that James is writing to is a lot like Crossview Church in this way, that they love the teaching of the Bible. One of the things I love about us as Crossview Church is you and I, we love the teaching of the Bible. We hold it out strong. It's one of our values at Crossview Church is to know God through the scriptures. And that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But people who love the teaching of the Bible can slip into this place where they love to go and they hear the teaching. They say, wow, that was a great sermon. And then they leave it there and they don't do anything with it when they leave this place. It's a huge temptation. 
in places like the churches that James is writing to and our church as well. You can have a church that loves the Bible, but you can easily within that church create a culture that loves to hear the preaching of God's word, loves to hear the teaching of God's word, but then doesn't do what it says. Or doesn't take the time to say, God, do I need to listen to this? It's easy to listen to a sermon or teaching and say, wow, that was a good sermon or teaching, and then just forget about it and move on with your life. James is saying, don't do that. So as Dr. James looks over the church of his time, he sees harsh words, he sees favoritism, he sees an absence of actions connecting with the good teaching that they're getting, and like a good doctor, he's going to give us the diagnosis of the real problem to all three of these symptoms and more. These are just symptoms. James now gives us his diagnosis. Notice he doesn't just say, Stop talking harshly. Stop giving people favoritism. Match up what you say. He knows that there's no power in that. As human beings, we can't just change our behavior by our own self-will. So he gives us the diagnosis. So now we're going to look at how he makes the proper diagnosis. James tells the patient, these churches, and us as well, the bad news. He says, you have a deadly disease. He's honest. We don't want to hear it, but it's truthful. He says, you have a deadly disease, and I want you, as I look at chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, and read it, see if you can pick out the diagnosis that James is giving us. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. James's diagnosis for these symptoms is double-mindedness. His diagnosis is double-mindedness. As James looks at the human heart, he sees something that is anti-gospel. He sees something that is anti-Christian. And he calls this terrible affliction double-mindedness, and he addresses it through this entire letter. The original Greek language is a word, that word that we translate in English here, double-mindedness. It's a Greek word that James made up. It's not really a normal Greek word. And what it means is two-souled, S-O-U-L-D. He says you have become two-souled. You have two different souls within you. You're divided. You're doubled in how you're thinking. You say, I believe one thing, but then you believe another. And in his raw feeling of seeing these churches want to grow in Christ, he conveys something to them that's so opposite what a follower of Jesus should be. Instead of being wholehearted, consistent, with integrity, James is expressing this trait that is common in these churches and probably common in my heart and perhaps yours as well, where we can easily become 
two-souled. We can become double-minded. The word of God throughout the Old Testament new comes against this disease called double-mindedness. We see it in the Psalms. Look at Psalm 86, verse 12. I'll put it on the screen here for you. You don't have to turn there. But it says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. James doesn't want us to live with a divided heart where we kind of have like our church Christian life and our work life and our family life and we have all these different allegiances that our heart flows to. One heart for God is the goal. Psalm 119 verse 2 says, Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Full, wholehearted devotion. James makes this connection of the mind and the heart. And he knows the human condition so well, so he's addressing this fact of double-mindedness that he sees taking place in the hearts of followers of Jesus. He talks about double-mindedness, but now we're talking about heart He connects those two because the heart or the soul is the core central part of the person. Everything we are emerges from the heart. Everything we think, what we desire, what we choose, what we live out, it's the center control of our life. The heart includes what we know, what we think, what we love, what we choose. And James is seeing a double-mindedness, a lack of oneness in the control center of the life of a Christian. And he says that's a deadly diagnosis. It's a deadly way to live. Because at the core of it is a lack of trust in God. We trust in God in some things, but in other things, we've got to look to things in this world, things in our life, things that those will bring our comforts and safety, not God. And it creates this double-mindedness within us. And James wants to address this thing, and he says that this double-mindedness is a brokenness. It's a lack of wholeness in the life of the person. And he says in verse 6, 7, and 8 that the person who's in this state Often one of the symptoms is that their prayers aren't answered. Richard Bachman wrote this. He said, the reason the prayers of the double-minded are not answered is that such people vacillate between trusting God and looking elsewhere. They do not truly wholeheartedly want what they ask of God. Instead of one dedicated, focused trust on God alone, these followers of Jesus have become two-souled. We say we're going to trust God, but we also want to add this to that list of things we trust. We say we're going to trust God, but we also want to add another allegiance that we're going to bow to and serve. We can so easily do this as God's people. And I want to suggest the book of James is all about this whole diagnosis of double-mindedness and leading us from that to a place of wholeness. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Don't you want to be whole in 2024? That's why we're looking at 
the book of James. But we see double-mindedness in everything he brings up. In chapter 1, we looked at verse 22, where he says there's a division in our listening and our acting. In chapter one, 2, verse 1, he said we love God, but we also give glory to human accomplishments. In chapter 2, 15 and 16, he says we divide good teaching and good actions, and we don't bring those together. We're divided in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, our speech is divided as well. And finally, I want you to look with me at chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, you adulterous people. Again, it's a double-mindedness. You, you trust one thing, but then you leave it and go to another thing. Don't you know what friendship with the world, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Look at verse 5. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? God jealously longs for the allegiance of his heart of his people. That's the kind of God he is. God is a God of wholeness. He's a God of oneness. He hates it when things are meant to be whole become divided or separated. Separated. He, it goes against who he is. So James diagnoses this state that we are double-minded. In other words, we're divided among many affections that leaves us brokenness and we long to become whole. But do you know what the kiss of death is for the follower of Jesus that has this diagnosis? Do you know what the kiss of death is for the church that has this diagnosis of double-mindedness? The kiss of death when you've been diagnosed with this double-mindedness is just to say, well, that's just how it is. I'm just going to go on and live like that. It's the kiss of death. James is saying, don't do that. Learn the ways of your heart. See the double-mindedness in your actions. Identify it, name it, call it out, and bring it to the cross of Jesus Christ. And say, Jesus, I want to be more whole. I want to be singly focused. I want to have an undivided heart that fears your name. Don't get comfortable with your double-mindedness that you just say, this is how it is. So that's what we do with our double-minded soul. With our fractured soul, we run to the cure. And so like a good doctor, not only did James point out the symptoms, give the diagnosis, now he gives a right course of treatment. Notice that it's a course of treatment, meaning that wholeness is a process. It doesn't happen instantaneously most of the time. James gives a treatment for the double-mindedness. Look at chapter 4 again. Let's go back there to verse 6. It says, he gives us more grace, talking about God. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. The regular treatment for double-mindedness, the course of treatment, the course of healing, is regular, daily, heartfelt turning back to God. A turning and a returning. We call it repentance. The medicine is a life of repentance. Repentance means where we turn from all those different divisions in our life and we say, God, I don't know how to make this happen, but I want to be solely focused on you. 
I want to have an undivided heart to fear your name. And to do that, I need your grace and your power. James invites us into the process that leads to wholeness. Look at verses 7 and 8. Submit yourselves then to God. Turn to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Here's great medicine. Come near to God and he will come near to you. That's the cure for double-mindedness. Come near to God, or some translations say draw near to God. We live lives of repentance because when we turn to God, we draw near to him. And when we draw near to God, transformation of our heart and soul takes place. When we spend time thinking about our heart, bringing it to God, looking at this word, looking at the scriptures, praying and worshiping him, there's a reorientation by the power of the Holy Spirit that happens in the hearts of the believer that pulls us closer to God and helps us live the way we're supposed to live, whole, undivided, with integrity, united. When John the Baptist was talking to the Pharisees and they were asking him about what does it mean to look like a person that God honors, he said this to them in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. He said, prove by the way you live that you have repented from your sins and turned to God. Some people say it's not just praying a prayer and then go living however you want. No, it's not. Because that says right there, prove by the way you live your life daily that you repented and also meaning in, built in there that you live a life of repenting of your sins and turning to God. The cure for double-mindedness is to have a heart that's quick to return to God. A heart that's quick to repent. A heart that is quick to turn we heal our hearts and live the true Christian life when we turn and return to God. We heal our hearts with the gospel of grace when we humble ourselves and we turn and return to God. We heal our hearts to the point where they become whole when we turn and return to God. Grace is the only cure for the double-mindedness. Willpower to stop all the other loves and focus on God will not save you. It will not work. We're too broken for that. We need the healer. We need Jesus Christ in his hand to bring wholeness. And the only way we get access to the hand of Christ to bring wholeness is to humble ourselves and turn to him and say, God, I need you in my life. Not willpower but by grace. So I'm going to give us an invitation as I wrap this up, as we consider this series. I want to invite us to do two things. First of all, I want us to get really good at asking this question. What is going on in my heart? If I asked you that today, could you give a good answer? What's going on in your heart? Might be good, might be bad. But I think we have to be people of reflection that understand and, and have an ability to know what's going on in our hearts, 
to know when we're dipping into the double-minded ways. What is going on in your heart? You have to be brutally honest about that. Brutally honest with God. You look at your heart and you sense this arrogance. You say, God, I just am seeing this arrogance in my heart. Or you sense lust or envy or hatred towards someone. Pause. Man, I feel this hatred in my heart towards that person. God, I know that's not pleasing to you. I want to turn to you and repent. Is there sin in our hearts? Is there peace in our hearts? Is there godliness in our hearts? We need to be aware of what's going on in our hearts, and we need to speak more of things like sin and forgiveness and repentance. Second, we invite God into the brokenness of that. God, will you come in and change that? We place our hearts before God, the master physician, to heal and make us whole. He's the only one who can do it. Would you please come into that place, God, and lead me to wholeness? I hope that we learn how to put these things into practice as we spend time the next several weeks in letting the physician James examine our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. If any athlete was known for their unbelievable focus, it was Michael Jordan of the Chicago Bulls. In his book, Driven from Within, he tells a story. He went to a friend's house named Fred Whitfield, who was the president of the Charlotte Bobcats at the time, and a friend, and he's hanging out at his house, and someone called and said, hey, do you want to go to dinner? And he said, yeah, but let me ask if I can borrow some clothes from Fred. So he asked Fred if he can borrow a sport jacket. And Fred said, yeah, just go into my closet, grab whatever one fits and works. And so Michael Jordan went into his closet, and we opened up the door. He noticed that Fred had a bunch of Nike gear, which he expected because Nike was an endorser of Michael Jordan, and he worked with Michael Jordan. But then he noticed in his closet he had a bunch of Puma gear. And he had the Puma gear because he used to work with a basketball player who came before Michael Jordan named Ralph Sampson, and Ralph Sampson had a deal with Puma. And so there was this Nike stuff and this Puma stuff. Well, Michael Jordan found a coat for him to wear, but then he took all the Puma stuff out of his friend Fred's closet, and he went into the living room with it, and he laid it on the floor of the living room, and then he went into the kitchen and he grabbed a knife. And he came into the living room and he started ripping all the Puma clothes to shreds and lay them all in a big pile on the floor. And he said to Fred, don't let me ever see you wearing anything else but Nike. You can't sit on the fence. God in his amazing grace, with his loving hand, wants to take our hearts, if we bring them to him, and shred off of our hearts all of the world's ways of thinking that have seeped into our minds, that we think are normal. And he graciously wants to lead that heart then, free from the world's way of thinking, into full devotion to Jesus Christ. Once divided, now made whole. Let us in 2024 Crossview Church allow the Spirit of God to do his work in our lives. 
Let's pray to that end.